The song Crossroad Blues by legendary bluesman Robert Johnson has been interpreted by many of his fans as an allegory of Johnson selling his soul to the devil in exchange for his otherworldly musical talents. This particular tale resides more in the realm of mythology, but what is real is the Faustian bargain that our monetary and fiscal authorities seem to have struck. Under the guise of providing emergency stimulus to help the economy avoid a significant and prolonged recession as a result of the pandemic, the twin barrels of ultra-loose monetary policy and unprecedented fiscal spending have gone into overdrive and there is no end in sight. The immediate results have been mostly predictable and mostly positive. The economy is indeed recovering and risk assets are levitating once again. But there are negative side effects to consider and a final bill that must eventually come due. This is Markets in Focus from Carillon Tower Advisors, and I'm your host today, Steve Mazarek. Join me and my colleagues as we discuss the latest trends and developments driving the markets. Be sure to subscribe for new episodes and visit us at marketsinfocuspodcast.com for additional insights. Joining me now is Todd Thompson, CFA, Managing Director and Portfolio Manager at Reams Asset Management. Todd, welcome. Thank you, Steve. Glad to be here. We have talked and written quite a lot about monetary policy in the post-2008 period, but perhaps it would be good to start with a bit of historical context. We are currently stuck at the lower bound in terms of the Fed Fund's policy rate. The Fed is hoovering up $80 billion of treasuries and another $40 billion of agency mortgage-backed securities per month, and the Fed's balance sheet has exploded higher towards the $8 trillion level. Todd, maybe you can kick things off today by answering the simple question, how did we get here? Great question, Steve. You have to look back and realize this started uh, as an experiment a long time ago, what it seems like, in the wake of the 2008 uh, financial crisis. At that time, you had a residential real estate-induced recession, crashing of markets, and the Fed stepped in to engineer monetary policy, lowered interest rates, but ran into a lower bound at that time as well, what was at the time unprecedented conditions, and had to deal with not just the markets, but uh, the fallout of, of the correction in real estate and commercial, both commercial and residential, that was affecting virtually every part of society, which is not just an asset unlike like stock and bonds that are owned by a certain segments of the society, but real estate is really affecting everyone. So at that time, they stepped in and used their unprecedented monetary policy at that time and engaged what is now known as quantitative easing. And so it started back then. And uh, what that process does is with the Fed using their balance sheet to purchase bonds in the market, it adds a tremendous amount of financial liquidity to the system. By them buying assets, the money effectively goes into the banking system, adding liquidity, which is a major a domino effect for virtually all financial assets. It's almost like a crowding out effect. The Fed is purchasing assets for their own balance sheet, and that is effectively crowding out the space that other investors could be doing for their own purchases in the open market. In effect, quantitative easing lifts valuations of everything as the demand exceeds the available supply of those financial instruments. Some people have asked, is this arguably a form of manipulation of financial asset prices? Arguably, one could say, yes, it is definitely a distortion of those prices in the market. But um, manipulation, I guess that's for debate. 
without a doubt, this is all an experiment that started back in 2008 and 2009 and has gone on for uh, much longer than what people have expected. It's one simply just one more tool in the toolbox that monetary authorities have at their disposal. The goal was to exit this, which they started to do a few years back when we had economic growth that was strong. They thought that was their window to be able to exit this experiment, but the pandemic changed everything. I don't think they realized they'd be back at this in such short order, but that's how we're here today. So it seems as though there are several potential goals for monetary stimulus. One obvious one is to help avert some sort of immediate disaster, a collapse in capital markets and the follow through effects on the economy. Another effect of all this QE and monetary stimulus has been to prop up asset prices. As you look at the unprecedented policy response, again, starting back in 2008, it has extended and hasn't really gone away. Has this long-term campaign of monetary stimulus achieved its main goals? And if it hasn't achieved the intended goal of promoting higher growth and stabilizing the economy, why not? Another great question, Steve. I would say uh, when you take a step back and look at what are the intended byproducts of quantitative easing or this extreme version of monetary uh, alternative monetary policy, it's really to step in and support financial markets. That's the primary. It's basically intermediation. When there is a crisis, there is disintermediation. There's capital that leaves or liquidity that leaves the market. The Fed is basically trying to step in and support and provide a bridge of intermediation in the financial markets, almost grease to wheels or grease to a machine to make it operate smoothly. And a secondary byproduct of what is a wealth effect. And when you step in and, and engage in the first function, that normally lifts those prices. It's the crowding out. It's the adding liquidity. The financial liquidity lifts all prices. Well, that creates a wealth effect. The wealth effect then spills over into consumers. Their financial well-being is better as a result, and therefore that has a uh, some of a spillover a factor uh, associated with it and affects their spending down the line. And so those are the main byproducts. This is only supposed to be a bridge or a temporary solution during times of duress. The goal is, is provide a bridge and have a handoff until normal consumption in the economy, whether it's uh, commercial or consumer, is filling that void in given time. And you can then, authorities can then retrench or pull back that bridge and go back to a, a more of a neutral stance. So that, that is the, the, the goal of this. And that was the intent back in 2008, 2009 when it was started. But one of the challenges, it, was it effective at that time? Arguably, yes. And But one of the main challenges is how do you effectively withdraw that bridge? Um, when you look back to, uh, let's say, the 2008, 2009 experience, let's judge the efficacy of this program. Was the uh, financial markets supported and, and recovered? Absolutely. You saw the, the sharp rebound in stocks and, and, and rebound in, in credit instruments. Those are, uh, without those being recovered, capital formation would be very difficult. That would have a spillover to uh, business uh, in, in, in the economy. And so in, in, from the forefront, you saw capital markets uh, supported. And secondarily, the epicenter of that crisis was commercial and, and, com and consumer residential real estate. Those markets in turn, because of the liquidity poured into the system at the time, which would looked unprecedented, those markets were supported and found their footing and allowed the clearing process of excess 
uh, misplaced real estate, uh, misallocated real estate, I should say, to be cleaned up and provide that necessary healing process of that credit cycle. The effectiveness was definitely there. The issue was how to withdraw that bridge once the uh, demand on a global level resumed. Um, I will point out one thing, although it was effective at creating that near-term bridge, it did have its own set of unintended consequences, or maybe it was intended, but just tolerated consequences. Number one, prices of financial assets because of this overwhelming uh, buy program were arguably distorted. When you have a large purchase program going out there, particularly in the bond world, prices don't uh, reach what my uh, academics would say would be an equilibrium of natural supply and demand. So prices are distorted. And the second point I, I mentioned too is how do you get away from this? You know, a lot of people have viewed a nice analogy to describe uh, alternative monetary policy is tantamount to a patient in the hospital who is ill and is using a drug to tie them over until their body has a natural healing concept. That's a great way to look at this. Well, quantitative easing works the same way. And similarly to that patient, you have to wean them off that drug and get off. We've never effectively seen both sides of that work here uh, in, in, in the United States and globally, quite frankly. We started to wean the patient off that, and we've never really saw a full excessive, a successful off-ramp before we had the pandemic ensue and cause us to go right back on that drug again. But we still have yet to see uh, a full full circle of this, of get, weaning the patient off that drug. Yes, indeed. Going back to your earlier analogy, if it was meant to be a temporary bridge, it sure feels like it's become the foundation. And to your point, how do you effectively remove that stimulus without causing a lot of volatility and adjustment in the prices of risk assets? What is your best guess for how the Fed extracts itself from the zero interest rate policy and quantitative easing? We've been in emergency measures mode for 12 years running now. How do we exit? Before I answer that, let me, let me, one more point that's very integral to this is not just were prices distorted, but um, one observation of the last 10 years of watching this play out is an unintended consequence is the financial liquidity. Some people have asked, does it move the needle in regard to inflation? And that's a great question because even for the last 10 years, uh, monetary authorities have aspired for higher inflation, goods and services inflation, because there's some, um, it was running uncomfortably too low for the last 10 years. And some have wondered whether there's structural reasons for that. Arguably there has, there's the China effect or uh, information technology. There's a lot of reasons, demographics that could argue for why inflation is almost stubbornly too low below the Fed's comfort level. And some people have asked why they've used this tool. And that's the main tool that's been used for the last 10 years. The other one is fiscal policy. And before the pandemic, that was really more fiscal neutrality or fiscal restraint, if anything. And budgetary prudence has really been the, the rule uh, of the last decade, both here and in Europe. Um, but one could argue that the only thing quantitative easing has done, it hasn't done anything with goods and services inflation, but rather has had rather large impact on financial asset inflation. You have to separate the two, financial asset inflation and goods and services inflation. And that's alarming. And that is, it's is intended to 
to really, their goal is to move the needle on goods and services inflation, but we bypassed that completely and affected all the financial assets. And I think that's, uh, that's something they have to reckon with is that is that's one of the, what we know now to be the, when you use financial instruments as the medium or avenue by which to affect this policy, you've now created and pushed infl- inflation over to financial assets and missed your mark completely. To your question about how to get away from this and how to extricate yourself or to get the patient off the drug, it remains to be seen. It's an open question because it, again, it requires that legitimate consumption in health of the economy and its natural progression to be able to wean that off. Perhaps we might be there at this point. We were beginning to go down that route in 2015, 2016, when they architect a course to do that and designed a course. But now uh, that all got thrown aside with the pandemic. But now maybe this time, the hope is with a resumption post-pandemic and with the help of fiscal stimulus, there might be uh, some scope for doing that. We could talk about that, uh, some of the impediments to that, but at least there is the, some believe that's the, your best chance of doing that, uh, to be able to um, finally unwind this uh, extraordinary monetary policy. In terms of timing, though, the Fed has consistently said that they're going to maintain zero interest rates through 2023. This hardline stance seems rather odd with an economy that is now growing rapidly and signs that inflation is picking up. Is there a breaking point? In your view, is there some data that the Fed may be waiting for, some signal that will finally get them to move away from the super accommodative policy stance? I think right now the Fed is playing a little bit of posturing, a little bit of a game face in regard to managing expectations in the market. They keep using terms like transitory or temporary in regard to these near-term threats of inflation and trying to manage expectations that um, they will be here for the long term. They'll be here to continue the stimulus and not have to uh, disturb the markets with rising rates, uh, interest rates too soon. However, this is an experiment of unprecedented monetary stimulus and unprecedented fiscal stimulus, almost a double-barreled approach of stimulus all coming at the same time. And although they have expectations for a liftoff and, and a resumption of employment and economic growth, several things that could go wrong in regard to uh, inflation, in regard to ability to absorb those unemployed people back into the workforce, that uh, anything that is could create a, a, a discomfort with those members of the Fed, they may be forced to uh, take action to remove uh, financial accommodations sooner rather than what they've led on to believe with this posturing. And if it becomes something that's a fear that it's becoming more runaway or more uh, sustained at a level above their comfort zone, they will end up acting much quicker than what they have articulated up to this point. And so that's really the issue. Um, Now that has one vexing issue to this is the labor situation. My guess is if, 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 as of today, there are still between eight and eight and a half million jobs still displaced from the pandemic, according to uh, economists. Those are not coming down as fast as expected. Now, if they were to absorb, the economy would were to absorb those jobs rapidly in conjunction with inflation going up, my guess is it would, it would create uh, a little bit of uh, concern at the Fed and, and hasten this decision. But um, what we're seeing now is, which is a new challenge to the market, is it's going to be tough to absorb those jobs. And a lot of that, in my opinion, 
has to do with the, uh, the stimulus and the benefits that are being offered to people. It's basically saying the government is competing with low-wage employers to compete for those people. And now it's created a conundrum at that low-wage point of trying to pay enough to draw those people in off the sidelines. It's trouble. Most of these businesses that are, are, are struggling to get their employees are at food establishments or retail establishments and some hourly uh, laborers for just uh, general uh, uh, manufacturing jobs in the economy. That now is, becomes a constraint and a supply shortage, so to speak. And so um, that is now maybe an impediment to uh, the Fed getting their goals of employment down. But going back to your original question, I think um, if inflation becomes back to a, a, a higher sustained level than what they're comfortable with, it would pull them, their horizon in, into unwinding this much quicker than what they've articulated up to this point. Okay, let's turn to fiscal policy now. Since 2019, Fed Chairman Jay Powell has repeatedly said that monetary stimulus would not be enough in response to crises like the U.S.-China trade war and later the pandemic. That fiscal stimulus would also be needed. And we certainly have that now. The level of deficit spending is unprecedented going all the way back to World War II. We also have a couple of additional fiscal packages on the table. What are your expectations for the rest of this year and into 2022? And do you expect the fiscal stimulus spigot to remain wide open for the foreseeable future? This is an incredibly challenging topic because uh, it's gone full circle from where it has been for quite some time. As I said before, fiscal for the last 10 years has been almost you know, restraint or belt tightening globally as uh, you know, it's, it's, the mantra has been you know, uh, balanced budgets, balanced budgets. And now um, there's a new paradigm, it seems. And I think what broke this was the pandemic. And as we said before, Chairman Powell mentioned for several years, even before rates were lowered after the China trade conflict, he basically said, I can't do this alone. We need help at the Fed. And I think what that was, was a tacit admission that uh, monetary policy has limitations near the zero bound. And he was basically saying, there's only so much we could do. We need to rely on something different, which was, of course, he was speaking of fiscal stimulus. Well, we knew that. And he finally admitted it. Uh, but he basically said, we need Washington to do some. Well, he got that, but I don't think he ever envisioned it would be this much on this scale. We had our first installment March of 2020. It was $2.8 trillion, all told. We had an, a second installment in December. This was all appropriate at the time. And let me stop there and say, what, what do you mean? What's appropriate when you think of fiscal stimulus? Well, when you have a sinkhole, that's the way I describe of economic growth. That's the way I describe it. Last year, a sinkhole of economic growth around the second quarter, that has to be filled. Uh, that's demand that's lost. It was around 34% annualized in that second quarter because of the stoppage and shut-in of the economy. Well, that needs to be filled in. The sinkhole needs to be filled with artificial demand or temporary demand. And that's what they did. They issued over you know, $2.8 trillion of stimulus. That was roughly 10 12%, like most other countries, of, of demand. And what that did was fill the hole of demand that was lost because of the shut-in. So 
all academics would say, thumbs up, you did the, the right amount. But what's surprising is that even though we're coming out of this pandemic, there is a, another launched uh, program of $1.9 trillion in March of 2021. So we've gone beyond the sinkhole. And now, as, Steve, as you alluded to, Steve, there's two more, the American Jobs and the American Family Program, that is $3.8 trillion that's sitting on deck in addition to that. So it is as if the new administration got some success last year with a much needed program, but they were, it's almost like the thinking is, well, we're on a roll. Let's do some more while the, the party's still rolling and let's get in as much in as we can. And they're using that uh, much touted um, budget, budget reconciliation tool to massage that and make it go through the Senate rather relatively easy. This is obviously, again, back to the academics, this is much larger than what's needed. So I, uh, one can one can say this is expanded beyond what uh, uh, is needed for the economy and is now moved into more of a political and agenda for from the administration. And so that's really what is going on. But that goes back to the issue of how is this going to be funded? And that's why we're talking now about tax increases on income, tax increases on capital gains, uh, among other things, to to make this uh, make uh, all this tie together. Uh, I guess the question is, does it need to be funded? And this really dovetails with something that has entered the zeitgeist over the last couple of years, which is the concept of modern monetary theory, with the caveat that it's not really modern, it's not monetary in nature, and we could also debate if it's actually a coherent theory. But nonetheless, MMT has certainly entered the picture, and we have fiscal spending as far as the eye can see. Todd, can you give us a layman's explanation of what MMT is? Well, thanks, Steve, because I'm not an economist, but I'll take my best shot at doing this a layman's term explanation. MMT, which stands for Modern Monetary Theory, states that for those countries that have a fiat currency and have the ability to print without limitation of that currency, print additional quantities of it, that you can always print what you need and spend and adjust use that as a counterbalancing to adjust the economy. So that is uh, what it looks like on paper. Are we doing this in the United States as advertised? No, we are engaging in what I call a, a pseudo or backdoor way of making this happen. How's that, you might ask? Well, we're spending the money. That's definitely happening uh, through the fiscal program. But what it's not just we're not just printing money and giving that from to the um, uh, from the treasury to the uh, the government to spend on fiscal stimulus or giving it away directly. What we're doing is a in our form of modern monetary theory. What we're doing is buying securities uh, when the Fed is purchasing securities for their own account and printing money to make those purchases. The money is going into the banking system and creating liquidity. So it is a backdoor way of accomplishing this. Or let me let me say it differently. We're issuing treasury bonds to fund all this fiscal uh, largesse, so to speak. And then the F- Fed on the other side of the house is growing their balance sheet each month to purchase those same instruments that are being issued to fund that uh, the fiscal deficits. And so it is an indirect way. And I think that's a way that no one actually, actually has to admit that we're engaging in this process. 
but for all intents and purposes, it is uh, modern monetary theory. And so that's, uh, that's how we get to uh, this. So we've talked about two programs today, a monetary policy, the J-PAL and what the Fed's doing with the quantitative easing and fiscal policy with President Biden uh, and the infrastructure spending, uh, so-called. But they're not separate because of what you mentioned, Steve. They are indeed inextricably linked together because of this. What Biden is doing on the fiscal side is clearly related to what Jay Powell is doing because he is buying those same bonds issued by Biden in the Treasury area. And so that is by that they are inextricably linked. And back to your point you made about Jay Powell. Yes, he has asked for fiscal stimulus, but he got a lot more than what uh, he had asked for and potentially significantly more. But now it's created somewhat of an issue because... Now he's almost beholden, one could argue, to Biden and the fiscal stimulus program that's out there right now and which continues to grow with these additional programs that are uh, in, in negotiation right now. What are some of the potential negative side effects and distortions with this implicit backdoor MMT, uh, however you want to define it? Whatever term we use, we have massive fiscal spending and huge federal budget deficits. Can we really have our cake and eat it too? Or will the chickens eventually come home to roost? Uh, feel free to answer entirely in cliches if you want. I can't do the cliches as good as you can, Steve, but let me try to take a stab at it. Um, I think we are reaching a very critical point because a lot of people have long thought the Fed to be independent in their positioning. But I wonder right now with this current construct, how independent can they really be? They're almost forced right now to do the assistance of the administration in regard to the financing, this largesse of a fiscal program. After all, they are one of the larger buyers of this large debt program that is funding the fiscal stimulus. And so one of the questions is not only are they independent now that they're being pulled in more and more, but can they even taper at all if they wanted to? And that's one of the things that people are on the lookout for is will the Fed taper? Well, can they? I'm not really sure at this point they even can because walking away and tapering means you have stepped away from that critical function of being one of the significant financiers or buyers of the debt of this large fiscal stimulus program. If they were to back away, that would have to be supplanted with something else like higher interest rates to attract other buyers, particularly foreign buyers, or perhaps higher taxes in relatively short order to supplant on the revenue side. Um, but in either way, these two issues have come into question. The number one, their independence. And number two, can they even taper uh, as a weapon at all? We already talked about before the goal of, by itself, the goal of quantitative easing is to provide a bridge and you ultimately want to get, let go of that bridge or and walk away from that. Well, I'm sure they felt the uncomfortableness of being there and they want to unwind what they're doing. But now I, I wonder if they really can because now you're inextricably linked to the fiscal side and it's going to require a pretty draconian assistance on the other side to supplant you for you to be able to walk away in the first place. I guess the one of the worst scenarios to think about at the other side of this is if you can't pull this off where you have a larger fiscal demand and now you, the Fed is doing your beck and call, one of the vulnerabilities, if you can't pull this off, is, the, is, is your currency. And um, at the end of the day, 
that is one of the vulnerabilities you face is you are debasing your currency. And if you lose support from that on the international community as a reserve currency, that becomes costly as well. And so that's the one thing to think about is all works well with a stable currency, but continued printing of this in financing your deficits is by definition, a cheapening of your currency situation and must be factored in as well. When you think about global reserve currencies like the euro and yen, they're also pursuing some form of this as well. So that currency debasement could be masked to a large extent because we're all racing towards the bottom here. I might offer that what we're seeing when you look at some of the things going on uh, with cryptocurrencies, uh, NFTs, just asset prices more broadly, uh, everything that is priced in fiat currency is getting more and more expensive by the day. So that's possibly how all of this is being priced in, because normally you might have expected rates to move a lot higher based on all this deficit spending, uh, not to mention the monetary stimulus uh, as well. And you might expect to see the U.S. dollar weaken significantly. But if everyone is playing the same game at the same time, then you're not seeing that superficial effect. You brought up a great point, which has been in our mind as of late, which is, um, as I alluded to uh, a few moments ago, one of the unintended consequences of alternative monetary stimulus is financial asset inflation. What people never really equated fiscal stimulus with financial asset inflation, because that's normally, you know, they equate infrastructure with buying, um, you know, brick and mortar, cement, wood, and 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 really pumping a demand. Uh, side to the to the situation would would, would be able to, to to affect prices, but I got to be honest with you. What, what we've seen in the last last six months uh, now, we wonder if like monetary stimulus causing financial asset inflation, one could say fiscal stimulus has now done the exact same thing um, for the points you mentioned. You have to wonder if the run up we have seen uh, in the first part of this year in some of the alternative investments, if I can dare say that, uh, items such as NFTs or cryptocurrencies or SPACs or the meme stocks, you have to wonder how much of that run-up was associated with the fiscal stimulus, which, dare I remind you, deposited a lot of, uh, of free money in people's checking accounts. And so it's not just monetary stimulus that has created financial asset inflation, it's now arguably uh, the fiscal stimulus that has done so as well. And this just happens to be yet another unintended consequence of this very large program that we've been experiencing in the last 12 months. Well, I think that's a great place to leave things. Uh, this has been a, an excellent discussion, Todd. I really appreciate your time today. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Markets in Focus from Caroline Tower Advisors. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find additional market insights at marketsandfocuspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Podcasts are for informational purposes only. This channel is not monitored by Caroline Tower Advisors. Please visit marketsandfocuspodcast.com for additional disclosure.
This material is a general communication being provided for information purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be taken as advice or a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan feature, or other purpose in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from Carillon Tower Advisors or any of its affiliates to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any examples used are generic, hypothetical, and for illustration purposes only. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and you should not rely on it in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, you Users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and make their own determinations together with their own professionals in those fields. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production, but no warranty of accuracy is given and no liability in respect of any error or omission is accepted. It should be noted that investment involves risks, the value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. Past performance does not guarantee or indicate future results. There is no guarantee that these investment strategies will work under all market conditions, and each investor should evaluate their ability to invest for the long term, especially during periods of downturn in the market. Investing involves risk and may incur a profit or loss. Investment returns and principal value will fluctuate so that an investor's portfolio, when redeemed, may be worth more or less than their original cost. Diversification does not ensure a profit or guarantee against loss.